All right, I want to welcome everyone again this morning to our continuing study of the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn. I'll tell you what, give me a quick thumbs up in the back if you can hear me. Thumbs up in the back. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 29. And I'll ask you to join me as we pray together. Ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we take our stand again today in the name of Jesus. And your word tells us, Lord, that he is the only mediator between you and us, the man Christ Jesus. And so we come in his name, Lord, and we boast in his name, and we trust in his name, Lord, and we sing these glorious realities today, Lord Jesus, you are the resurrected living Savior. And right now, Lord, right now you are exalted at the right hand of God. And we come to you, Lord, as your people, and we ask God that you would flex your power. Jesus, that you would show your strength, that you would show your might at the right hand of the Father. And we ask, Lord, that you would use the preaching of your word today to do your work in your church. That your will would be accomplished, Lord. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the times in the life of this church that you've used your word to encourage us. And Lord, we ask today that you would show us how powerful you are to encourage human hearts with your word, Lord. Do it for your glory, Lord Jesus. God, I pray this morning, especially for the unsuspecting one in our midst that found their way into this place, Lord, and if they were honest, they're not expecting very much. God, I pray that you would remind them that they're dealing with words from another world, hot breath from the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in their life today. God, feed your children with your words of Holy Scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. What we have this morning in this passage that we're about to read together is we have a story of deceit. Deceit on a massive scale. And if you've been paying attention or are following along with us as, as we've preached through the book of Genesis in recent weeks, this theme of deceit has been reoccurring. And it's been wrapped up in the life of the patriarch Jacob. He's the third patriarch in the book of Genesis. And we've been studying about his life the last several weeks. And very soon, his name is going to be changed to Israel. And that's what we know him as, I guess more commonly, is Israel, the father of the nation. But right now in the book of Genesis, he's known to us as Jacob. Jacob. And that word in the Hebrew Bible, that word means deceiver. His very name has connotations of the cheater, the deceiver. This is Jacob. And as we've seen in recent weeks, his deception runs deep. This is the man that deceived his own father, pretended to be his older brother, and snatched the, the blessing away from his older brother Esau. And by the time we land in Genesis 29, 
what's happened to Jacob the deceiver is after he snatches this blessing from his older brother and deceiving his father, he gets more than what he bargains for. And because of the murderous hatred of Esau, Jacob is banished from the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he's forced to leave the land of promise as a fugitive. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 29. And so what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a deceiver. But as we've also seen in recent weeks, that at the same time, in this same character, not only is he a deceiver, he's also a chosen one of God. That God, for his sovereign purposes, apart from anything that Jacob has done, God has set his affections upon Jacob, and he's chosen him. And he's chosen to give him his blessing, completely detached from any merit in Jacob. He's chosen. And so we see this, that at the same time he leaves the promised land as a fugitive. You remember last week that God comes to him in chapter 28, before he, before he gets out of the land of Canaan, and God draws near to Jacob in a dream. And the Lord grants Jacob this vision, and Jacob sees the spiritual realm, and he sees angels ascending and descending on this stair, and he sees the Lord. He sees the Lord. He beholds Yahweh, the one true God. And, and in this moment, and in this vision, where God draws near to Jacob, God speaks to this man, this deceiving, sinful man, and he gives him his covenant promises. And here's one of the things that God tells Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, he says this. He says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I want you to imagine that you're in the place of this wandering fugitive. And I want you to think about how precious of a promise that would have been that the Lord God, who can never lie, who can never lie, that he draws near to you and he says, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. You're going out of the promised land now and you're a fugitive, but I am with you. And this is what Jacob carries with him into this passage that we're about to read together. The promise of the presence of God. And what we're going to see as the people of God as we read this text together is God is going to be faithful to that promise in Jacob's life. He is going to be with him and he's going to keep him no matter where he's at on planet earth because he's God's chosen and God's blessing has, has fallen upon Jacob. But the thing that we're going to see and we need to pay close attention is that as God keeps this promise to be with Jacob, we're going to see in chapter 29 that God is with Jacob in a very surprising way. And we're going to learn something about the presence of God, the multidimensional presence of God with His people. And so let's begin and let's read our text together. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, 
the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him for a month. And then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Verse 26, Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. 
And then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban another seven years. And so as we enter into chapter 29, we see the beginnings of God keeping his promise to Jacob on his journey. God said, I will be with you. And we see God keep that promise in the way that God providentially guides Jacob to his wife. And I want you to think about how striking this providence is. This is not the way things normally work. Okay? God leads him to just the right place at just the right time to meet just the right woman. Look at it in verse 1. Jacob, he, 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 he leaves the promised land and he goes out. So verse 1 calls it the land of the people of the east. Just the right place. Just the right place. Other places in the book of Genesis call this same piece of land. In chapter 28, it's called Padam Aram. And in chapter 24, it's called Mesopotamia. The land of the people of the east. And if you remember back in chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, this is the exact area when Isaac sends Jacob away to find a wife, he sends him to this exact place. That he's to go to the place where his mother, Rebekah, where her family dwells and take a wife from Laban's daughter. And this is the exact place that the Lord leads him to. He comes to a well in chapter uh, 29, verse 2. He comes to a well. And I want you to think... how. You know, how normal the writer of Genesis would have us to think that this situation was and how exactly opposite of normal this is in the way that we live our life. And so he comes in, he gets to this well in verse 2, and he, he asks three questions to the shepherds, strangers that he's never met before. He says this, where are you from? And they say, Haran. And he says, oh, do you know Laban? Question number two. And they say, yeah, we know him. You know, conversation's not necessarily just taken off right off the bat. And, and, he, and he says, is it well with him? Question number three. Three questions to a stranger. And the woman that is appointed by God, his beloved bride, walks right into the room. Okay? And every single brother at Grace Community Church saying, it don't work like that. Right? <laughs> That's not how it works, right? This is God's providential guidance of Jacob. God said he would be with him. He goes to just the right place, just the right time to meet just the right people. And just so happens, right? The language of providence just so happens. The first woman he lays his eyes on is a daughter of Laban named Rachel. This is the exact family that God told him to take a wife from. And so what we see in these first two paragraphs is we see Jacob, he's, he's overcome by God's love for him, by God's gracious care for him, and, and that God would be pleased to guide this sinful man in this way. This is striking providence. Striking providence. Verse 11 tells us that Jacob is so overwhelmed that he kisses Rachel and he weeps aloud. 
Verse 11, he kisses Rachel and he begins to weep aloud for what God has done in his life. Now, I do want to mention this. It's the only time in Scripture that a man and a woman kiss each other without being married. And what I want us to note is that this is not a romantic kiss. This is a a familial kiss of greeting. This is a kiss of celebration. And if you want to push back on that, I'll just point out one thing. That two verses later in verse 13, Jacob and Laban do the same thing that Jacob and Rachel just did. So be really careful about what kind of practices we're reading out of this text. This is, this is a different culture than our culture. And what Jacob's doing is he's celebrating. This is celebrating. God let, led me right to you. God led me right to you. Just the right place. Just the right time. To just the right girl. Verse 11 says that he begins to weep aloud at God's kindness to him. God's kindness to him. He's, he's visibly celebrating the providence of God in his life. And I wonder if you've ever done that. Okay, I wonder if you've ever seen the hand of God so clear in your life. So clear in your life that the only thing you knew how to do was just praise the Lord. That you were overcome with his fatherly care for you as his child. And this is what we see is God's gracious providence in leading Jacob to Rachel. Directly to Rachel. The providential guidance of God, this is one of the things that scripture tells us that we can trust God for this. We can trust God to be our God. We can trust God for providential guidance. We can trust him to orchestrate our steps in this world. Psalm 32, verse 8 says this. This is God's promise to us. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is God. This is what who He is and this is what He does. And we can trust Him for this. We can trust God to guide us. And the way that God does that is through His Word And through the providential circumstances of our life, God led Jacob directly to his wife. And and this is a a similarity to that same story we saw in Genesis 24. The servant of Abraham was sent to take a wife for Isaac in this same region, Padam Aram, Mesopotamia, the land of the people of the east, Rebekah's household. That's how she came to be Isaac's wife. And that story also happened at a well. And most likely, it's the same exact place. And this is God's care for His people. He providentially provided for Isaac. He providentially provides for Jacob. And if you wonder where any single brothers at Grace Community Church are going to be this afternoon, is they're going to be booking the fastest ticket that they can find to this well and Padam Aaron, where you ask three questions to a stranger and your wife walks into the room on the spot. This is God's care for his people. So Rebecca runs off and she tells her father Laban. Laban enters into the scene. And remember, he was also at that scene in Genesis 24 when Rebecca met the servant of Abraham. She ran and told her family, and Laban came to meet this servant. And this time, there's a contrast that when Laban comes to the well this time, 
it's not like it was in Genesis 24. Because when he came in Genesis 24, the servant of Abraham was loaded down with money. He had a caravan that followed him to the land of the people of the east. And he had these gifts that as soon as he saw Rebekah, he started laying on the possessions, laying on the money, laying on the gifts. And, and Laban is presented to us as a deceiving, schemeful man. He's a con artist. And if there's one thing that's true about con artists is they remember stories like that. Okay? Last time I ran out to the well and met a descendant of Abraham, there was tons of money involved. And so Laban comes running into the scene, but what he finds is the exact opposite in Genesis 29. That, he's, that he, his eyes land on Jacob, and instead of being loaded down with camels, loaded down with gifts to offer, Jacob is a penniless fugitive that has, has been banished from the promised land until the murderous anger of his brother Esau subsides. And we're told this interesting phrase in verse 13. Interesting phrase that Laban takes his nephew into his house and it says that Jacob begins to tell Laban all these things. Okay, all these things. And what is that a reference to? That's a reference to everything that has happened up to this point in the book of Genesis. That Jacob begins to tell his uncle, here's what I did, here's what led me up to, to this situation, and here's where I find myself now. I stole the blessing from my older brother. I deceived my father. My brother, now he wants to kill me, and I've, and I've been sent out as a fugitive to find a wife he begins to tell Laban all these things. And many commentators, they note that something happens right here in this particular part of this passage. That as Laban begins to unpack what, I mean, as Jacob begins to unpack what he's done wrong, Laban, the con artist, he pounces on Jacob in this vulnerable, desperate circumstance. He pounces on him. And it's subtle. It's subtle. And so what does Laban do? Well, instead of helping his nephew build a new life, his blood relative, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, what Laban does in verse 15 is in a very subtle way, he changes the relationship that Jacob and he have from uncle to nephew, blood kin, and he reduces their relationship to a laborer under contract for wages. And he says this in verse 16, What shall your wages be? And, and this is a scheme. This is, this is a schemer. This is a con artist. This is Laban's plot. Is that he wants to get Jacob, penniless Jacob, hooked into this work-for-pay contract. He's treating his own nephew like a slave. And some point out that you know, the strength that, that Jacob displayed, and, and this is just, a, just an aside in this passage, that there's a stone on top of this well that most likely took several different shepherds um, to move it, and Jacob, all of a sudden, he mans up in a moment, and he just does it himself. And Laban is a con artist, and, he, and he's thinking, you know what, that strength that he just displayed, that can be useful to me. So this man has no money, 
And he's a very able-bodied, strong man. And Laban sets this trap. And, and Jacob is willing to go along with Laban's proposal. Why? Why? Well, the text tells us in, in verse 18 that Jacob loved Laban's daughter, Rachel. He loved her. He loved her. There was something that happened in that connection between them that he loved her. He believed God led him directly to her and he wanted to take this woman as his wife. He loved her. And the problem was is that he didn't have a dime to his name. And in this culture, there was a bride price that had to be paid. And so Jacob is more than willing to enter into this work contract, this slavish servant contract with his uncle Laban because he wants to work for Rachel, his wife. And so he agrees to these terms. Seven years service. Seven years of slavish service for Rachel, the daughter of Laban. And we're told at the end of that paragraph that because of his love for her, this is genuine love, that these seven years, they seem like a few days. It was a sacrifice in one sense, but in another sense, it wasn't a sacrifice at all. He loved Rachel, and he, and he agreed, and he did serve for Rachel for seven years like a slave, like a slave. And what does Laban do? Most likely, verse 21 is a reference to Laban dragging his feet and not keeping his side of the contract, the terms of the contract. Most likely, the time of seven years has already been passed. And Jacob has to go to him forcefully in verse 21. And he says this, Give me my wife. Give me my wife. And that's just another little aside that we're dealing with a different culture. And one of the things that's common in this culture, in that culture that's not in this culture, was the concept of betrothal. And after this agreement is made between Laban and Jacob, she is legally his wife. And he calls her that in verse 21. He doesn't say, give me my fiance." He says, give me my wife. And so what Laban is doing in withholding this man's wife is very deceitful, it's scheming, and it's very sinful. And so Jacob has to force the terms of this agreement. And when he does, we're told what Laban does in verse 22 is he throws a feast. He throws a party. And again, we're in the middle of another culture. That in the ancient Near East, and we know this because of other documents that we have besides the Bible, we, we can begin to understand some common wedding practices throughout the ancient Near Eastern cultures. And, one of the, and some of the common threads to these marriages and these weddings is it's not like us. It's not like we do it. It's not like your wedding day. It's more like your wedding week. And that's what Laban does is he begins to throw this feast in verse 22, this is a marriage feast. And the ancient Near Eastern custom was this, okay? At the end of the first day of this feast, a veiled bride, a veiled bride, the practice of the veiling of the bride, sometimes you still see this today, that is a very ancient practice. So the first, at the end of the first day of the wedding feast, the veiled bride 
would be walked into the marriage chambers to consummate the marriage. And this would be followed by a week-long celebration that in many different places is referred to as a drinking banquet. Okay, a drinking banquet. This is a celebration. And so what Laban does in verse 23 is he goes exactly along with this custom, except for he changes one thing in verse 23. One significant alteration to this wedding custom, and he waits until the darkness of night comes. He waits until it's dark. He's going to need that darkness to pull off this plot that he's about to pull off. So he waits till it's dark, and it's time to veil the bride, and he goes to veil the bride, except for this one thing, is he veils the older sister Leah, instead of the younger sister Rachel, and he walks the older sister Leah into the marriage chambers, veiled under the cover of darkness, and I don't think it's a stretch to, to assume that there's this is a drinking feast that some of your normal um, um, senses are not working as well as they normally would. Under the cover of darkness, under the veil, and possibly with intoxication involved, he walks Leah into these marriage, the marriage chamber instead of Rachel. And look at verse 25. And... and this is a, this is a simple, simple passing comment of what happened. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. What an understatement. Behold, it was Leah. So I want, to, I want you to imagine, okay, not a, this is like a worst nightmare. This is like your worst nightmare, okay? That you work for your beloved bride for seven years. For seven years. And all of a sudden you enter into this consummation act with a woman that you did not want to be married with. And the throwaway line in scripture is, behold, it was Leah. Behold, it was Leah. And so I want you to try to picture, you know, this is his worst nightmare except it's not a nightmare. You know, he's trying to wake himself up. Maybe he's pinching himself that morning, being like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way this is real. And said, It is real. It is real. Unwanted surprise, to say the least. Behold, it was Leah. Now, here's where the narrative in the book of Genesis becomes very ironic and very intentional. Okay? Very ironic and very intentional. And what I want us to see is that the writer of Genesis is taking great care in this passage to show us that the deceiver Jacob, who pretended before his father, who stole the blessing from his brother, the pretender Jacob, has now been gotten by his own game. That's what the writer is showing us in this passage, that the deceiver has now been the deceived. The deceiver is now the one being deceived. This is the principle in Scripture of reaping what you sow. Reaping what you sow. Jacob goes to Laban in verse 25, and he asks this question, Why have you deceived me? Why have you deceived me? 
And that's an intentional move by the author of Genesis because that word deceive, this is the same Hebrew word, same Hebrew word that Esau uses in chapter 27 to describe what Jacob did to him. That Jacob is the one who came deceitfully. Jacob is the one who came and cheated Esau twice. First for the birthright. Second for the blessing. Why have you deceived me? And Laban's excuse is really two things. It's a pathetic excuse. He says, this is not our custom to, to do what you were asking me to do. For seven years he could have told Jacob that. It's a pathetic excuse. There's no excuse for what he did. But at the same time, the words that he uses, though they're pathetic and though they don't justify his actions at all, there's, there's almost this prophetic sense to his words at the same time. And I want you to look at what he says in verse 26 and note carefully the words that he uses. Verse 26, he says, It is not so done in our country, and then listen, to give the younger before the firstborn. The firstborn. Does that word stick out to you? Does that word remind you of some preceding stories in the book of Genesis? This has been the whole battle between Jacob and Esau. It was a battle for supremacy. The older will, will serve the younger. And so with that word firstborn, Laban is actually mocking Jacob. He's mocking him. He's making him drink his own medicine. Remember, Jacob is the one who told Laban all of these things. Seven years later, Laban makes Jacob drink his own medicine. The deceiver becomes the deceived. And so I want you to see the similarities of what happens in Genesis 29 to what happened in Genesis 25, 27. This is the same trick that Laban plays on Jacob is the same trick that Jacob played on his father. Played on his father. This is the same plot. And you notice the similarities here. They run deep. Okay? Laban in this story is playing the role of Rebekah in the story of the stealing of the blessing. They're the ones that hatch the plan. They're the ones that concoct the plan. They're the ones that lead their children into the deception plot. Laban is playing the role of Rebekah, his sister. And Leah in this story, she's playing the role of Jacob. And do you see these similarities here? Jacob pretended to be his older brother Esau. And his father said, his blind daddy said, who are you? And Jacob said, I am Esau. He pretended to be his older brother Esau. And in the same way, Leah, under the darkness of night and under the veil, she pretends to be her younger sister Rachel. Similarities here. The writer of Genesis is wanting you to see this, that the deceiver has been had. The deceiver has been had. And this is shameful, shameful deceit on Laban's part and on Leah's part. Leah, she sexually pretended to be her sister on her sister's wedding night that her sister had waited for for seven years. This is a savage move. 
She stole her sister's husband. And what we see as this plays out, even after Laban has been exposed, is he's still not done. Because Jacob is in this vulnerable position. Now he slept with the woman that he loves, sister. No, he's got no resources to work this out. He's completely vulnerable. And, and, and Laban continues to pounce on him. Savagely use him. And what does Laban do? Is he demands that if you want the woman you love, you're going to serve me another seven years. And as this plays out, Jacob knows that he's been had. He's got no trick to play. He's got, he's got, he's got no game. He's got no rebuttal. He's got no resources. All he can do is submit if he wants to have the woman that he loves, if he wants to have Rachel as his wife. And so he submits to Laban's plan, and we're left with this phrase in verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Now let me mention very quickly that polygamy in all of Scripture, multiple wives in all of Scripture, is not only spoken about as a bad idea, it's a sin against God. And a good place to start chasing that out is Genesis chapter 2. God gave us the standard for marriage for all of time, coming out of the Garden of Eden. One man, one woman, in a lifelong covenant called marriage. Beautiful gift from God. And any distortions to that pattern are sinful distortions. So we need to be really, really careful about looking at these godly men, and we need to remember that they weren't godly in every part of their life. And these polygamous acts, these polygamous marriages are certainly examples of that. And if you ever uh, want evidence, you know, that's a really bad idea to marry multiple women or multiple men, especially sisters, then come back to Grace Community Church next week and the Word of God is going to remind all of us of why none of us need to be involved with this kind of thinking about marriage. And, And we need to know that because the direction our culture is headed is 100 miles an hour to casting all restraints off of anything that God says about marriage and about sexuality. Okay, This is a sinful distortion. But in a real sense, Jacob didn't even have a choice. Okay? There is a sense in where this was forced upon him. She pretended to be his wife on his wedding night. Now, this is the low point of Jacob's life. This is the low point of his life. He came into this world, and guess what they were saying about him? <laughs> there was prophecies about him before he was even born that he was the blessed of the Lord, that he would be the one of prominence, the one chosen by God. You remember that's what God said while he was still in the womb with Esau. God said that the older will serve the younger, that Jacob will have a place of supremacy. And yet where we see him right now in this text is this is the lowest part of his life. The one who was to be served, the older will serve the younger, 
as the one in this particular chapter who's reduced to serving like a slave. The one who is destined to be served is the one who is served, serving like a slave. It's a low point in his life. He's already served seven years for Rachel. And what we find by the end of this passage is that another seven years of bitter service is added to that. You didn't see that phrase for that second seven years. That because of his love for her, this was like nothing, you know. This is bitter service. Not only that, his own uncle has become his enemy. And not only that, Jacob now has an extra wife that he doesn't even love. That he doesn't even want to be married to. And this is where we find him in this text. This is the blessed of the Lord, the one whom... God promised to be with him, to keep him wherever he went. And yet we see him brought to this place of lowness and humility. And I think what we're supposed to see in this passage is that God is providentially disciplining Jacob. He's disciplining his son, Jacob. Jacob is the deceiver. And God is taking him through circumstances in his life where Jacob is being shown by God what it's like to be on the other side of his deception. And this is the part of the presence of God that we don't often think about. Okay, That when God promises to be with us, He promises to be with us in a comprehensive way. And Hebrews 12 is the foundational text that tells us reminds every believer in the room that God has promised to deal with us like a father who loves his children. He's promised to deal with us like a father who loves his children. And that means he will discipline us. God will discipline us. Same way he disciplined Jacob, he will discipline every son or daughter who he takes to himself because he loves us. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll read these words about the discipline of the Lord. Discipline of the Lord. Beginning in verse 5, writer of Hebrews says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us For our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Be healed. This is the text that reminds us that God disciplines all of His children. And I would submit to you that verse 12 and verse 13 of Hebrews 12 is a possible allusion to Jacob himself. The warning there is to take heed lest God put something out of joint. And in all of Scripture, the closest place that we can locate that language is just a few chapters later in Genesis where God touches the hip of Jacob and he pops his hip out of joint. I think this is an allusion to us that Jacob is being disciplined by the Lord. And we're to take heed that this is how God has determined to deal with all of his children. And so what we need to remember when we're considering the covenant promises of God. God is our God. He's promised to guide us. He's promised to be with us wherever we go and to keep us. But this passage reminds us that His presence with His people is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. That God is not with us like a genie in a bottle that we just call up and ask Him whatever we want. God's presence with us is to accomplish His own purposes for our life. And this story reminds us that God loves all of His children, all of His children too much to leave us in our sin. And yet, at the same time of God's discipline falling on Jacob, we see in this same passage that the blessing of God is not revoked. And that's how the discipline of God works as it relates to His children. He disciplines us, listen, for our good, always. For our good, always. It's always redemptive. He always means it to do, to do us good, always, for His children. Always. That we may share in His holiness. That we may be partakers of His nature. And that's what we see with Jacob in this passage. That in spite of God's discipline and him being brought very low, the lowest place of his life, Jacob is still blessed by the Lord. He's blessed by the Lord. And God uses, even though Jacob's deceit is sinful, and even though though this plot that has happened against him is absolutely sinful, we see a picture in this chapter that God is working in the midst of the deceit to accomplish His purposes. Say, what do you mean? God will specifically use, this marriage is sinful, okay? It's sinful. The very existence of it is sinful. You'll see more of that next week. But God's going to use it. God is going to use it. God is going to enter into the deceit. God is going to use the deceit. God is going to use the sin to accomplish His purposes. And these two sister wives that Jacob takes, Leah and Rachel, in the very next section, they're going to bear 12 sons that are are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to see the character of God to enter in 
to the most messed up situations and work it for good and to use even human sin to accomplish His purposes. And this is tremendously encouraging to us once we see the breadth of the, this good news of the gospel. We need good news that God can do us good, that God can bless us in spite of our sin. We need that news. We need good news that God can bless us in spite of others sinning against us. And that's exactly the good news that we find in the gospel. And from Jacob's life, Genesis 29, we're reminded that for every believer, for every believer, the schemes of men, they will not have the final say in our life. Our sovereign God will have the final say in our life. No matter what comes against us, And so to use the language of Genesis 50, this would be the language of Joseph, Jacob's son, what Laban meant for evil against Jacob in this text, God meant for good to Jacob. What Laban meant for evil in this deceit plot, God meant it for good in Jacob's life. And this is the same words that his son will learn to repeat to his deceitful brothers where Joseph stands before the deceivers, the plotters, who sold him into Egypt, and he tells them, you meant this against me for evil. You sinned, there's no excuse for it, but my sovereign God meant this for my good. This is glorious news, that there's nothing in your life where men have the final say. God always has the final say. God always has the final say. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, God works in the lives of His people. Whatever it is, even if His people are cheated, even if His people are wronged, even if His people are sick, even if His people are persecuted, and listen, even if His people are killed, the sovereign God has the final say. Not the schemes of men. And if we could see this, we'd walk out of this place today praising the Lord That there is literally nothing in your life, believer. There is nothing in your life that God is not able to work for your good. Nothing. Nothing. Consider this, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God has even made death itself to be your servant escort into His eternal presence. There is nothing that can happen to you, that God is not able to work it for your good, that God does not mean for your good. And my question is, do we believe it? Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? Romans 8, 28, this is, this is the most familiar verse we have in this realm, and I want us to hear it again. This is the way our God works. This is the promise of our God. And we know that for those who love God, all things... Work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And this text reminds us, even sin in your life is not, it's not outside the all things there. Even the worst things that could possibly happen to you. God's promise to every Christian is that He will work all things for our good. And we become most convinced of this reality of God coming in and working even human sin to accomplish His purposes. 
we become most convinced of this reality as we look to our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look to the Lord Jesus. No one has ever been cheated like Jesus was cheated. No one has ever been cheated like Jesus was cheated. We have a phrase that, 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 that we hear you know, chunked around in this culture. And that phrase, they call it a philosophical you know, question. This is one of the foundational questions of philosophy. And that question goes something like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And certainly some would read even this story in Genesis 29 in that framework. Why? Why? If God is sovereign and He's in control, why would bad things happen to good people? And what I want to remind us of is that there's a sense, there is a sense in which that has only happened one time in all of human history where bad stuff happened to a good person. And Jesus stands in singularity by Himself as the righteous one, the only one who never sinned. Scripture makes commentary to every other human being that there's not one who does good. There's none who does good. There's not a man on earth who does good and never sins. We all sin and we fall short of the glory of God. No one was ever cheated like Jesus. He was the sinless Son of God who came to save His people from their sins. If there was ever a man who never deserved to be schemed against, it was Jesus. If there was ever that righteous one who never deserved the plots and the scheming, it was Jesus. But what did they do? What did we do? Jesus was schemed against, and not only that, He was murdered. And here's the bullseye. Here's the bullseye of the doctrine. Here's the bullseye of this glimpse of God that we're seeing. The murder of Jesus Christ is the worst sin that has ever happened ever in human history. Where the sinless blood of the Son of God was shed by us. By us. God sent His Son into the world to save us from our sins. And what did we do? We killed Him. We schemed against Jesus and we killed Him. In the words of Genesis 50, we meant it for evil and killing Jesus, but God meant it for good. You see that at the cross? Sinners meant it for evil. They wanted to put Him in the ground never to be seen again, but God meant it for good. The very same act, the worst sin that's ever existed in all of human history, and God meant it for good. He's able to work in the midst of human sin. Nothing can stop Him from accomplishing His purpose in our life. The cross of Jesus was meant for His death, but God meant it to give eternal life to sinners like you and like me, to all who would trust in the Son of God. We meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. He meant the cross, the worst sin that's ever happened to anybody. He meant it for good. And He's promised salvation upon this bloody death of Jesus. 
to any and all who trust Him. And brothers and sisters, I hope you're encouraged this morning. I hope you're encouraged this morning that there's nothing that can come into your life that can derail and overthrow the purposes of God for your life. They are secure in Christ Jesus. God works in the midst of human sin. He establishes His kingdom in the midst of a world that hates Him. He will not be stopped. Human sin cannot stop the sovereign God. He's a God who will accomplish His purpose in the lives of His people, and we can trust Him. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, sums up this truth in this way. And it tells us this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord. God, and we want to sincerely, we want to thank you for your kindness to us, God. God, I pray that you would help us to remember personally, Lord, that in spite of sin, in spite of sin, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were your enemies, you came for us, Lord Jesus. And no one else did. You're the only Savior. You're the only one. And there's no one else coming. And you came for us in the midst of our sin. God, thank you for your glorious grace. Lord, we say truly that there's there's nothing like your gospel. And there's there's no God like you. You are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And we praise you, God, for your kindness that you have been pleased to take all of your might and all of your power and work all things for the good of your people always. Lord, we love you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.